Rifle selection is one of the most important aspects you can start looking into when you're deciding what it is that you want to hunt and you know what it is that you want to achieve with your rifle. Caliber selection is a highly debated area when it comes to any type of hunters. Um, I did a lot of ballistic research when I first started looking for a hunting rifle and being new to big game. I did want to stick with the traditional 30-06-270. I had it in my head that I needed to shoot a little bit longer range. And in some cases you will in a, in a western type of hunt. Now it's not saying you can't do that with a 270 or a 30-06, but you do start losing some ballistic advantages when you start getting out there. So caliber selection is key. Recoil is one of the factors that you definitely want to consider when you're picking your rifle cartridge. I started off learning at 12 years old on an old 308 single shot bolt action rifle with peep sights. Now that's not the pinnacle of technology these days. It's not hard to get a cheap rifle scope combo that you can shoot 300 yards and make consistent hits. So, first things first, what do you want to hunt? I like to make an all-around gauge assessment on what I can take a bull elk down with. Okay, we're not talking about archery here. Um, we're just talking about rifles. So, if you're looking to take down a bull elk as any as any real hunter will tell you, shot placement is key no matter what you're hunting with. And that's true. But you also want to pay attention to bullet selection. So to start out with calibers, your 30 calibers are going to be one of your quickest ones that people are going to point you in the right direction. You go into a gun store, you go into a Cabela's, you go into, you know, any any outfit that has someone who knows something behind the counter. And for a larger game like elk, they're going to recommend either a 7 mil, so a 7 mm rem mag, or something in the 300 caliber. So, if you are the type of person that is comfortable in being able to take a bit of recoil, a 300 Win Mag or a 7 mil Remington Magnum, those are going to be your core considerations. People can get fancy, you can get into the Nosler calibers, you can get into some of the Weatherby ones, they're, they're, they're hot rods. You know, they're fast, they're flat, but they're expensive. They chew up barrels, they're a little harder to hold on to the rifle, you know, they're louder. If you're new to shooting center fire rifles, I recommend you start a little smaller. When I started doing some training for long range shooting, I started training myself on a 223 Remington. I bought a Mossberg MVP. It was actually chambered in 5.56. 
which is not the same as a 223. They're very close, but in some rifles you can shoot both, and in one you can't shoot the other. So pay attention to what is stamped on your barrel, please. Learning how bullet flight works is critical to being able to make a shot past 200 yards. So if you need to know what bullet drop is going to do, how wind is going to affect it, you need to shoot in those conditions. But since we're focusing on big game, you cannot hunt big game with a 223. You need a minimum 23 caliber or larger in the province of Alberta to hunt big game. So we're going to stick with that. So your smaller calibers, your 243, your 6.5 Creedmoor, and your 7mm Ot 8, those are all three cartridges based off of the 308 Winchester, which is also a notable, which is also a notable caliber for these selections. You have a lot of bullet selection, a lot of different projectile weights with the 308 caliber. I've hunted with 308. I like it. My wife hunts with a 7mm odd 8 and a 308. I got two rifles for her and both uh, one caliber of those each. But they are they are a little lacking. You start shopping in the moose department and you start shopping in a bull elk department. 308s will do the job, but that animal's gonna walk a bit. So if you can handle very little recoil, the best thing for you to do is find a rifle that you can handle the recoil, that you can shoot comfortably, and you need to hunt within the ranges that you can do that with. So I don't think pushing a 308 past about 250 yards is going to produce as fast and as clean a kills as you would like it to. So. Any of your 308 based cartridges, so your 243, 6.5 Creedmoor, 7 mil odd 8, and 308 Winchester, if you're hunting larger game, you're gonna need to close that distance. We'll get into a we'll get into a stalking and cover and approach uh, chapter a little bit later on in another podcast. So we're just gonna stick with rifles here. Calibers. So Let's say that you can handle a 6.5 Creedmoor. Those things are very, very capable cartridges. Lots of good bullet selection now. They're not uh, as much of a wildcat as they were when they first came out with very little factory offerings. Um, I'm a very big fan of AccuBond long ranges in your Nosler Trophy Grade line and as well as Hornady's Precision Hunter with their ELDX projectiles they provide excellent terminal performance so pay attention to that that is important terminal performance means how well does that projectile dispatch that animal as quickly and as humanely as possible we don't want them running for a couple of miles we don't want them suffering we just want a fast clean kill so if you're the type of person that can handle a 6.5 Creedmoor, that's good. 
but you'd need to hunt within ethical ranges. You'll hear you'll hear stories and guys that are shooting a thousand yards with a six five Creedmoor. They are not likely the type of guys that are going to be putting that shot right in the heart every time without question. Those guys are shooting thousands of rounds a year out of custom rifles. We're just talking about a guy getting up off the couch and deciding he wants some good meat in the freezer and he wants to put it there himself. So for all intents and purposes, your longest shot when you're starting out needs to be 200 yards. If you get comfortable, pushing it to three is important, but you do need the practice. A small flinch at 200, you can still hit vitals. A small flinch at 300, you may be looking at a gut shot or a shoulder shot or wounding the animal or missing completely if you're lucky. So, range time. Practicing at the range with your budget ammunition and then trying to go and hunt with your your $60 a box precision hunter or otherwise ammunition is not the way to go about this. It is an investment. You need to shoot the same rounds through that rifle when you're practicing as when you're hunting in the field. That is critical. You need to know what that bolt's going to do in a 10k an hour crosswind. You need to know how it's going to behave at different temperatures. All this comes from your experience. Practice in different temperatures, different conditions, windy, rainy. You need to put in the time and you need to put in the money. You don't have to spend a fortune on a rifle and glass. You don't. I've built two rifles now on a budget Remington 783 action. That rifle in Canada retails for anywhere from $450 to $700 depending on your stock options so I've built two of them in 308 I did drop both of them into a Boyd's hardwood stock they both had pillar bedding and they just bolt right in the short the short actions that are non magnum really shine in a Boyd stock I recommend looking up something that fits you good getting an adjustable stock they're inexpensive they'll land at your door in Canada for under 250 bucks now that is a worthwhile upgrade because accuracy of the rifle means you can afford more human error. Once you've selected a rifle, I mean you can't get a 783 anymore except if you're finding a used one, which is fine. Getting a used rifle is not is not a bad idea. If you're looking for an affordable way to get into hunting, I recommend buying a bear rifle and picking a scope. So, if you're to look at the budget lines of rifles for an entry-level hunter, Ruger American makes one of the best. They're lightweight. They do have a quality stock. It feels a little flimsy, but their V-bedding system provides you with great accuracy out of the box without having to upgrade the stock. That's a personal preference. There's lots of makers out there. Weatherby Vanguards, they're they're decent out of the box. Um, I don't hunt with Weatherby anymore. I did have a bad experience with uh, with a Weatherby Mark V that was used. So 
I didn't want to continue with with that for two reasons the the barrel was burnt out when I got this used rifle and it's very hard to tell that until you start going out to the range and shooting it so Winchester XPR is another outstanding option again on the budget line of the rifles I have seen some savage rifles that are on the lower end of the price scale a savage axis has a leaves a lot to be desired uh, the savage axis 2 has a better trigger system so they're they're a viable option you're shopping in that five to seven hundred dollar range for the base rifle now if that's a lot I recommend looking for a good used one I have found in my experience that a Remington 700 besides being heavy and not very feature rich is a rifle that is going to need some attention for you to shoot accurately we're not looking for bench rest four holes touching five holes touching type of accuracy out of these but we need better than I have experienced with many 700 Remington rifles out of the box giving you two to three inch groups with factory ammunition it's that's not going to give you the performance that you need to reliably shoot something at two three hundred yards so my suggestion is you go into your local gun store and you start getting your hands on some of these grab three or four of the different ones so Winchester XPR if you can find an old Remington 783, I suggest that you give that a go. Your Ruger American Rifle, those are all, those are three real good ones that I have personally had my hands on and I can recommend for anybody that wants to start out. Do not buy a rifle scope package. The scopes that come on them and the rings that come on them to hold the scopes on, they are not going to give you the performance that you need for repeated fire any of your lines of burris or vortex or loophole in your budget line of these scopes i'm not talking about their military grade high-end two thousand dollar scopes i'm a budget hunter i don't have a lot of expensive firearms I've built one that I've put a really good high-end night force scope on, but it's very hard to digest spending over $1,000 on a piece of glass. So find, find a rifle that fits you. You've already needed to select a caliber based on what you want to hunt. So if you're sitting in that short action caliber in your 308 or related type of caliber range, then that's good you can stick with a nice lighter weight rifle it's not going to beat you up when you pull the trigger so find yourself it's very easy on cabela's to find yourself a, a 300 scope and about a 70 set of rings whether you've got to attach them with a picatinny rail or you need to get some tally rings with bases that bolt right to your right to your rifle's action which is fine either one of those is good you want to mount those as low as you can without affecting the travel of the bolt 
If you've got to grab that bolt and cycle another round and you don't want your thumb getting pinched between the bolt handle and the scope itself. <clears throat> so once you've found that rifle that you want and you start looking at a scope, there's a lot of options out there. There's some busy reticles, there are some dials on the top with a bunch of numbers. Either one of those is going to add a little complexity to what you're trying to do. Your task for hunting is to be able to put a shot on an animal without having to do a bunch of adjustments and calculations. So I recommend finding a rifle scope with either a very simple ballistic drop reticle or BDC, ballistic drop compensation. That means there's a lot of lines up and down the vertical reticle line. Now those will be tentatively preset to be as close to on point for a hundred at your zeroing crosshair, the center, and down from there, 200 yards, 300 yards, 400 yards. They will be plus or minus up to three, four inches depending on the caliber you pick. You can also get just a standard, what's called a duplex reticle. That's just the crosshairs. There's no nothing fancy to it. And if you have the option to get that particular duplex crosshair reticle with an adjustable dial on the top, that is what I recommend you start out with. There's less to focus on in the time when you're sitting there with an animal in that scope. You don't want your brain having to work too hard. So stay simple. The duplex scopes typically are less expensive than the fancy reticle ones as well. So that'll help you. One inch tube, which is the main tube of the scope that the rings clamp to, either gonna be a one inch or a 30 mil. So 30 millimeters. Either one of those is gonna serve you just fine. Where you'll notice the difference is right at the edge of dawn and dusk. That's when you're having a bigger main tube, so the 30 millimeter is bigger than the one inch. That's gonna let in more light to your eye. The same with a larger objective lens, which is the front of the scope pointing towards the animal. The bigger that is, the more light that you're gonna let in. Burris, I find, has a very excellent budget line of scopes. Full field E1s, they run anywhere on sale from about $200 to $400, depending on your magnification. Those are a solid choice. Um, your loophole rifleman, or I think it's, is it marksman now? They're not a, they're not a super expensive scope. So I think those are some solid options. And of course your vortex line in Canada, vortex is huge. Vortex crossfires, your diamondbacks, they give you, they give you quality glass at an affordable price and lifetime warranty. Same with loophole. So pick out something that makes sense for you and get it mounted. Get it mounted by someone who knows what they're doing because boar sighting is going to be one of the next steps we're going to talk about when we're out at the range. So once you've selected this package that's within your budget, that is within your caliber selection, 
then you're ready to hit the range. We're going to cover the range in another podcast, but I do want to cover magnums. If you're the type of person that's a little more heavier frame and can handle the recoil of the 7mm rem mag or the 300 wind mag, anything up in that neck of the woods, some guys are fans of the 338 wind mag, those are big rifles, they are going to kick. Now the trade-off with that is you can comfortably dispatch larger animals, but the rifles themselves are going to be a little heavier to help tame that recoil. They are going to kick. They are going to be a little heavier. You're going to have to pay a little more attention when you're pulling the trigger. So if you feel you can handle those, then when you're making your scope and ring selections, that needs to be reflected. Your scope rings for a short action non-magnum can be a little bit lesser quality they can be a little bit lighter a little lesser build to them when you start shopping for a magnum you do not want your scope to move so i recommend scope rings with four bolt or more caps you'll find four or you'll find six depending you don't have to go overboard but you do have to get a quality ring they're going to run you somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 70 bucks as well so it just depends on what it is that you need. Tally makes a very good option. Loophold makes another. Find what works best and what's recommended for the Magnum calibers if that's what you're shopping in. I went with my first major centerfire rifle was a 300 Remington Ultra Magnum. And the reason I picked that particular rifle is at the time... My research led me to a term that is called hydrostatic shock. Now, because that is an ultra magnum, it has intense recoil, it's very loud, but the performance that it puts downrange to the animal basically puts it in a coma after it's been shot and it bleeds to death, before it even wakes up. I have yet to put more than one round out of a 300 Ultra Mag into an animal out of the ones that I've shot to date. They just can't handle it. So that to me was a more ethical option. Now in hindsight, that's a lot of recoil. And I went through a lot of trouble with that rifle being an Ultra Magnum with the kick that it does have. And it was also a Remington 700. The model was a long range. So it's got a heavier barrel. It's a 10.9 pound rifle bear. It has a hinged floor plate, so no detachable box mag. Means it holds three rounds. This is not a handicap. It makes it a little bit more of a pain if you tend to be more of a truck hunter. You're getting in and out of the truck. But once you're out of the vehicle and you can load that rifle... It's very easy to just tip it over after you've made a shot, open up the hinge floor plate and add a, add a following round back in there and close it back up again. I don't mind it at all. It cuts down on the weight as well. So when I first started developing this shooting regimen with this 300 Ultra Magnum, it was all over the place. So a factory rifle, out of the box, I put a good scope on it, 
I bought a really nice red field scope. Now at the time that I bought these red field scopes, they had been purchased by Loophole. They were still getting made out of the same factory. They were getting the high quality glass that you can expect out of a Loophole rifle scope, but it was made under the red field badge. They are no longer available. They're been basically replaced by the Marksman line. So they're about a $350 scope, just a three to nine. That was all I figured I needed, which is on average, what I hunt with is a three to nine or a three and a half to 10. Now, when I started shooting this rifle, it's got a heavy barrel and started bench shooting out between 100 and 200. At 200 yards, that rifle was shooting with me shooting it, obviously about a seven inch group at 200 yards. Now that is not optimal. In my opinion, that is way too, that is way too loose of a group for you to be reliably trying to shoot something. So I started diving into the upgrades that you need to do to a Remington 700 for accuracy. One of the first things anyone is gonna find when they look online for this is blueprinting and truing the action. Now that can cost you upwards of 250 bucks from a gunsmith and it can go up from there. Bedding the rifle, so glass bedding at the right place can cost you anywhere from 100 to $500 depending on the rifle and the gunsmith. Again, this is why I've gravitated away from a Remington 700. Out of the box accuracy for what they make for rifles now versus what they did 40 years ago, 50 years ago is not the same hands-on craftsmanship that they used to put out. So when I started investigating this, I decided that I wanted to learn how to detect and correct my accuracy issues. Now the first thing I noticed when I pulled the trigger the first time, besides the sheer joy of feeling that much recoil, was that off of a bipod and a bench, that rifle hopped the bipod right off of the bench and came back down and bounced. So I tried, I went through different boxes of ammunition, different brands, different caliber, or different, uh, sorry, bullet weights, projectile weights. Anywhere from my 150 grain power level one up to the 180 grain power level two and the 210 grain power level three. That was the selling feature when they came out with the Remington Ultra Magnum was three power levels. So power level one was 150 grain, which they said was equivalent to a 30-06. Power level two at the 180 grain was tanned amount to a 300 wind mag and full power at 210 grains or 220, depending on the manufacturer of the ammunition, was giving you your full 300 wind mag ultra performance. So, all of those rounds were not supposed to change a point of impact to 200 yards more than two inches. Now that is true. With the Remington power level ammunition, it did not change more than that. So that is another option that you can use if you're looking at going into an ultra magnum caliber. However, I do not recommend it. 
It is a lot of recoil, as I found out. So I took it into a gunsmith and I had a muzzle brake put on. Now that corrected one problem and that also provided me with another one. Typically in hunting situations, people don't wear earplugs. Neither did I. Once I put on the muzzle brake, the recoil was cut in half, which illuminated for me the fact that I was not handling the recoil effectively as it shrunk my groups at 200 yards to three and a half inches. Now that's a little bit more doable. That's a little bit more precise, heading in the right direction. But it still did not give me what I wanted. I wanted less than one inch at 100 yards, so that is called one minute of angle. When it comes to shooting game one inch to one and a half inches per hundred yards is where you want to be. So at 200 yards, you're going to be shooting two to three inch groups. That's considered good. I wanted better. So I started looking into how to identify if there was a bedding issue. The Remington 700 long range comes with an aluminum bedding block built right into the Bell and Carlson stock. But it is a it is a factory rifle that that is printed off of. Not every action is the same. The tools wear out. So that aluminum block was obviously not bedding that action as comfortably as it needed to. So I took it apart. I had bought the proper torque wrench to redo the action screws up to the correct torque. And that is very critical with a bolt action rifle. If you're going to get into this, you need to pick up the Wheeler torque wrench kit. It's like a torque wrench screwdriver. So what I did with that rifle is I pulled the action apart and I took a Sharpie marker and I colored in all of the surface area that was aluminum for where this action was supposed to sit. I then, at the range, shot it, ran through, you know, three sets of groups so I could get a wear pattern. When I pulled the rifle back apart again at home, I did notice that it was not mating up very well at all. It had very little, less than 10% contact pattern. So I started hand fitting this aluminum block by way of some emery cloth to work down the high spots and then I'd recolor it and I'd head back to the range. Now you can save yourself a lot of money on ammunition. You can get a gunsmith to do this. I am not advocating for you to start backyard gunsmithing if you don't have some idea of what it is that you're doing. But I was fortunate enough to have some direction from a gunsmith friend of mine that told me what I should and shouldn't be doing and how to safely accomplish this task. After I spent quite a bit of time hand fitting that, I managed to shrink my groups down just by having a better purchase of the action into that bedding block. I managed to bring it down to two inches at 200 yards. Premium ammunition is gonna help you with consistency, but it may not necessarily be what your rifle likes to shoot. So keep that in mind when, you're, when you've selected a projectile or a bullet factory offering that you're going to need to shoot what that rifle likes. Accuracy is important. The bullet going where you want it to go 
is the most important thing. So, from there, I purchased a bedding compound and I laid in a very light, what's called skim bedding onto that, onto that bedding block and secured the action and then I stored the rifle in the recommended manner for a week for it to set up. Now this is not your average glass bedding job that a gunsmith is going to do. This was more of a temporary diagnostic fix that ended up working and still working in that rifle today. So once I, once I skim bedded the action, I found that I shrunk my group down to an inch and a quarter at 200 yards. Now that is perfect. That is, that is better than you can expect out of any of these factory rifles with just a little bit of time and a little bit of ammunition to spend. So now that I've got that down, now it's time to start shooting in the field. What you do is you find yourself an area that is very safe with nothing behind you. I had to go way out of town to find a big open area that I could test it out at two, three hundred yards, four hundred yards and see how this thing was working. Now I was fortunate enough that this area I could stop at was on my way home from work. So every day I would stop out there, take two rounds and shoot them at a steel plate that I had previously hung up. So it was 400 yards, two shots every day until I was comfortable making those shots. That allowed me the comfort and consistency to end up being able to shoot my first deer, which ended up being at uh, just a few yards shy of 400 yards. So it is critical that you put in the time and you put in the effort and you put the ammunition through that rifle. Get yourself used to the gun, the recoil, where you need to aim, how much drop it has, where, what it's doing in the wind. And a 10k an hour crosswind, that's a good experience for you to go out and try to do some of that shooting. Okay. I think that's good for I think that's good for the bedding and the rest of those. I'm gonna push on through some other some other topics here just as soon as I get into this next chapter. The progression of my physical fitness started about by realizing there were some changes that were needed in my eating habits first and foremost. Exercise is important as well, but diet can make or break your efforts. For myself, I had about a 38, 39 inch waistline, borderline 40, depending on the days. 225 pounds at six foot one. But when you're bending over to tie your shoes and you start having trouble to breathe, that's a good sign that you need to make a change. So one of the things that I stopped doing right away is I stopped drinking pop. You know, when it comes to fast food or mixing alcohol, 
pop is one of the first ones that contributes an almost immeasurable amount of sugar into your body without any substantial way of burning that off. The next thing comes down to, came down to for me, was bread. And I never really thought much about what goes into preserving bread for extended periods of time for consumer consumption. But if a loaf of Wonder Bread can last a month without mold growing on it, that can't be good for a healthy body. So, those two things I started doing is I cut out pop and ex like excess sugar, as well as I stopped eating bread. I, di I didn't completely go away from carbs or anything that drastic. I still had pasta, I still had uh, like tortillas. So instead of having even a burger, on a bun, I'd ha I'd cut it up into strips and I'd make, you know, little burritos. So after three months of just that, with the only exercise I was able to manage through that hunting season, sorry, that was the early hunting season, so that was spring, so spring bear season. Lots of hiking that I put on, not any more than you would expect of going out for, you know, four weekends worth of hoofing around. I wasn't walking a lot at that time, like three to five K a day, a little bit up and down. In that three months, I dropped four inches off of my waistline. I didn't lose a pound, but I dropped four inches off of my waistline. Much to my dismay, as I had just purchased a brand new set of Kuyu hunting pants that no longer fit. They, however, benefited my father, because if they didn't fit me, they fit him nicely, so. That was a game changer for me. I, I really realized what I was putting into my body wasn't serving me. It wasn't as healthy as I needed it to be. It didn't translate into the energy that I needed to burn, the right kind of calories to do what I wanted to do. I felt more energetic. You know, I was more motivated and driven. I got to buy a new pair of Kuyu hunting pants. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot to be said for what you're putting in and expecting to get out. So I suggest to everybody, start analyzing your diet. Drastic changes are not needed. Small changes go a long way. I didn't stay off bread forever. I fluctuate in between eating bread and not eating bread, but I changed the type that I buy. Going to a store and buying a loaf of bread when you, you know, when you know you're going to eat it that week, that's good. If that bread goes moldy in four or five days, that's the kind of bread you should be putting into your system or make your own. I haven't got around to making the bread thing yet, but it is on the list. I think everybody could probably eat within moderation. The next step of my uh, 
dietary evolution was keeping myself from overeating. It's hard when you have stuff that you really like or it's really good. I'll go back for that second bowl or that second plate because you can. And that's fine to do sometimes, but everything in moderation. That's key. I found cutting down overeating and keeping out the bad stuff. I mean, I bet you I drink pop maybe once a year, twice a year tops. And that just happens to be a little craving that I that I go with. So those uh, those three approaches have given me so much traction towards getting into what I want, what I'm calling mountain fit. Now the the programs that I got on when I started exploring diets beyond the cutting out of things that were making my body less efficient and you know having me hold extra inches where I didn't need them was uh, V Shred was an outfit this fella even if you don't go through the entire program in the manner that they've suggested, it was well worth the $60 American to get the information on the workouts and the examples of meals, uh, fat replacements, what you should be, how many meals you should be having, like what size, you know, it's, it's a very in-depth, very in-depth guide to to eating as healthy as you can and really cutting down that excess body fat. Now my aim was never to look like Vince. My aim was to be healthy enough to hoof through the woods and pack out elk quarters. That was the goal, that was the drive. From there, I stumbled upon Kuyu's YouTube page with Jason Hairston and a couple of other people that went through um, Mountain Academy and that's where he come up with the term Mountain Fit. Now he's an ex-NFL football player so you know Mountain Fit was even a struggle for him so I expect it to be worse of a struggle for myself and I'm by no means Mountain Fit yet. That's where I'm heading with this journey that I'm on right now. There is so much information on Kuyu's YouTube page for, for dieting, what to eat when you're in the mountains, how to train before you go. There's a four-part series that Jason Hairston did on the science of training, and it showed the difference between what his shape was like, and he is in impeccable shape, but what his shape was like before he went to, um, I can't remember the institution. It's in California because that's where they're out of. And they did all the scientific measurements. They calculated his VO2 max, his uh, aerobic, anaerobic threshold. I'm not as good with the terminology, but then they developed a training regimen and a diet regimen for him and it was only three days a week for, I think it was two or three months leading up to the hunt so that he peaked when he was going to the hunt. Like he was in his best shape at that point. 
So I think those approaches will work very well for anyone, even if they're not planning on going sheep hunting in the mountains, but just in your general fitness of walking around through some fields, hoofing down to the rivers and the draws and any of these rolling hill areas of open country, whether you're hunting in the Yukon or Saskatchewan, it doesn't matter. Getting into good shape so that you can put those miles on will only serve you in the long term for your health and your well-being. I plan on being a 70-year-old man still able to hike and hunt and pack meat out on my back. And those two tools that I used were very helpful for me. Um, one of the hurdles, though, one of the hurdles for me is alcohol. You know, I, I like drinking on the weekends. I like drinking during the week. Parties, you know, standing around campfires and sled camp and hunt camp. All of these, all of these times and the friends that I hang out with are very social. So it's been a hard pull over the last 10 years to lower the amount of alcohol intake I have because if you're looking at two important factors that alcohol contributes to you I drank beer and whiskey well beer is a extra carbs I mean anybody who's drank a lot of beer knows eventually you get bloated with it and you know you're putting in some serious carbs and calories that you may not be able to well burn off sitting around drinking so those can impact your your dieting and your exercise performance now the hard liquor is the stuff that really dehydrates you you know it, it makes your body work harder to stay hydrated to pump oxygen through your blood and and those things really those things really affect you when you're in the field we no longer take when i go hunt with me and my buddy my best friend we no longer take a you know put a bunch of beer in our pack yes it's a lot of weight to carry but even on our canoe trips we learned our lesson to not bring a bunch of beer to just sit there and drink when you've got to get up and hike the next day. It, it just makes it torture. And that's not what you're there for. You've got in this up here in this neck of the woods from August 25th to November 30th for general season hunting. Anybody can go throughout your two-week hunting trip saving that celebratory beverage of any sort until the meat's back in the truck or at home hanging you know anyone can save that if that's really what you're after is the experience and the meat and the the time outdoors i really recommend that you mitigate that it'll help with the weight and it'll help with your performance now that that being said it is a struggle uh it was a struggle for me still is um, I'm, I'm starting a new type of diet and I'm on day two where there's no alcohol involved and I'm sticking to super lean meats only, no bread, no tortillas, no, no real heavy carbs. And if I am having like pasta, 
they're they're like a half portion of what I would normally sit down and eat. With this progression, I've went to a smart scale that I picked up off of Amazon. I think it was E-Tech City or something. It's about a $30, $35 scale, hooks up to Bluetooth, and it tracks your weight, your body fat percentage, several other factors, your metabolic age. And it serves as a good baseline. So when I started with that, I was monitoring my blood oxygen saturation, my weight fluctuation, body fat has remained the same since I started doing that. But what I did notice is where my body normally sits at a blood oxygen saturation of 98%, 97-98%. After a night of me having even four glasses of bourbon, I was down to 92-94. And you can imagine on the weekends where you sit around if you're out camping or you're having a party and you consume four times that amount how much harder your body has to work in order to oxygenate itself and the recovery time gets worse the older you get as anyone who's in their 30s well understands so that's kind of the uphill struggle that I'm going through right now. Um, I do, I did have trouble getting on a treadmill as well. I wanted to start out light. The recommendations are you start with your physical fitness without a pack on. I know a lot of guys see people go to the gym or they see videos of guys training with their backpack on fully loaded. That is meant for the last month before your hunt and in, in a gradual increase of the weight. So to keep that in mind, scheduling is important. I have a busy life. I've got a wife, I have a child, and I've got a job that demands a fair bit of me. We live on an acreage, so there's animals that require feeding, snow that requires being removed. And we're in a major snow year this year, so time is, time is precious. And getting that schedule down, if you understand that you only need to do it three days a week, then it's a lot easier to jump into. So I went away from the treadmill and I picked up, I picked up, it's like a stair elliptical. So it's not the full length elliptical, it's meant more for climbing. And man, that is a workout on your legs, on your back. And those are the areas that you really need to work on. Full body exercises, of course, are important. Core is, is huge. You know, body weight exercises and, and high intensity interval training with this. Uh, it's a Bowflex M3. I think it's classed as an elliptical, but it looks more like a, a Stairmaster with... Um, like arm levers for you to get some full range of motion. So that's what I picked up just recently here. And it's a, it's a massive workout, like six, eight minutes on that thing and your legs are jello. So I'm working through that portion of it right now. And this new attempt at a diet. Because, of course, over the Christmas and the holiday seasons, you know, you fall off the wagon with so many things, you know, so many habits that 
change for you when you're in those festive moods and you're eating all that really good heavy food so it's good to have a new year's reset i'm not big on the new year's resolutions i picked this as my goal in november you know my wife shot uh, her first cow elk this last fall and we still had deer and bear in the freezer so you know we're, we're looking at a at a year or two where we're not going to have to worry about meat so i chose this year as my as my goal 2022 is my goal was to get into mountain fit shape and and get up that mountain go after some bighorn sheep and it's not that i know anything about bighorn sheep hunting but i figure my best bet is to get out there get in the mountains with the backpacking experience that i do have and see what it is that i don't know there's not a lot of legal rams up in my neck of the woods so the percentage the percentage in the general zones is around three percent of success it's very low draws wise you're looking at about 15 to 17 years to pull a draw in a higher populated zone and even those guys still only have i think eight to ten percent of success rate based on how many people put in for the draw versus how many people actually get their ram so this is more of a personal mission uh, a goal that i have that i want to accomplish and and learn i want to learn what it's like to hunt in the mountains can i do it do i like it even but i won't know unless i can go so this is where this uh this podcast is heading uh, i want to i want to keep you updated on my diet my exercise success uh drinking not drinking how that goes uh, some tools that i use for getting out of the habit of drinking so much and if you're uh if you're sharing that same that same habit then it's this might be some useful information for you i mean i hope it helps so take what you can out of out of this experience i i look forward to sharing it and keeping everybody updated uh, these are going to be lots of going to be having lots of interjections of gear selection and reviews on my particular findings with everything from rifles to boots to packs to clothing base layers outer layers rain gear gloves you know like there's so much information that goes into developing what you think you need for gear versus what you actually do need and not overpacking. So I'm going to bring you along with this whole, this whole mindset of what I have going on. And hopefully some of it you can take away and pursue your own challenges in any way possible. So best of luck to everybody. Thanks for listening so far. I hope some of this really motivates you to decide where you want to go, pick a path and a goal and work towards it over this next 
over the next six, seven months until we get into our hunting seasons.